Welcome to tape number 7, Leanings in the Godhead, Part 2, Excellencies which Pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 12, The Lordship of Christ But sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord, 1 Peter 3.15 In view of the context, it is striking to note that it was Peter whom the Spirit of God first moved to write these words. As he did so, his heart, no doubt, was filled with sorrow and deep contrition. He says, If you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Verse 14. On a never-to-be-forgotten occasion, he had been afraid of the terror of the wicked. In Pilate's palace, the fear of man brought him a snare. But in our text, he announces the divine remedy for deliverance from the fear of man. But sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. In the light of its setting, this means, first of all, to let the awe of the Lordship of Christ possess your hearts. Dwell constantly on the fact that Christ is Lord. Because He is Lord, all power in heaven and earth is His. Therefore, He is master of every situation, sufficient for every emergency, able to supply every need. When a Christian trembles in the presence of his enemies, it is because he doubts or has lost sight of the faithfulness and power of Christ. But sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. The motive for obeying this precept should not be our own peace and comfort, but His honor and glory. To guard against the feet of man, or the fear of man, excuse me, the saint is to cultivate the fear of the Lord, that Christ may be magnified. The Lord Jesus is glorified when His persecuted people preserve a calm demeanor and immovable fortitude in the face of all opposition. But this is possible only as our hearts are occupied with Him and particularly with his lordship. But sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. These words have a wider application. How little professing Christians dwell on the lordship of Christ. How sadly inadequate are the real Christians' views of that one who has a name which is above every name, that it may know, in parentheses, obtain a better knowledge of him, Philippians 3.10, should be the daily longing of our hearts and the earnest prayer of our lips. 
not only do we need to grow in grace, but also in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Second Peter 3.18. How little we really know the Christ of God. No man knoweth perfectly, excuse me, no man knoweth the Son, but the Father, Matthew 11.27. Yet much has been revealed concerning him in the Scriptures. How little we study these Scriptures with the definite object of seeking a better, deeper, fuller knowledge of the Lord Jesus. How circumscribed is the scope of our studies. Many form their conceptions of Christ from the first four books of the New Testament and rarely read beyond those books. The Gospels treat of Christ's life during the days of his humiliation. They view him in the form of a servant who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister True, Matthew's Gospel sets forth the kingship of him who was here as Jehovah's servant, yet it is as the rejected king. True also, John's Gospel portrays the divine glories of the incarnate Son, yet as the one who was unknown in the world which he had made, and as rejected by his own to whom he came. John 1, 10, 11, 10 through 11 it is not until we pass beyond the Gospels that we find the Lordship of Jesus of Nazareth really made manifest. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Acts 2.36 The humbled one is now victorious. He who was born in lowliness has been exalted, far above all principality, and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come Ephesians 1.21 he who suffered his face to be covered with the vile spit of men has been given a name more excellent than the angels Hebrews 1.4 he whom man crowned with thorns has been crowned with glory and honor Hebrews 2.9 he who hung in apparent helplessness upon a cross has taken his seat on the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3 The epistles, in contrast to the Gospels, were all written from the viewpoint of the ascended Christ. They treat of a glorified Savior. How much we lose by their neglect. Why is it that when Christ comes to our mind, our thoughts turn back to the days of his flesh? Why are our hearts so little occupied with the heavenly Christ? Why do we meditate so little upon his exaltation, his seat and session at God's right hand? Is it not because we read the epistles so infrequently? Many Christians find the epistles so much more difficult than the Gospels. Of course they do, because they are so unfamiliar. Enter a strange city and its layout, streets and suburbs are unknown. It is hard to find your way about, so it is with the epistles. The Christian must live in them to become acquainted with their contents. It is in the epistles alone that the distinctive character of Christianity is set forth, not in the Gospels. The Acts is transition, transitionary, and most of the revelation belongs to the future. The epistles alone treat of the present dispensation, but present-day preaching rarely notices them. Christians, in their private reading of the Word, seldom turn to them, but in the epistles only is Christianity expounded. Christianity has to do with a risen, glorified, and enthroned Christ. Thus, if we are to sanctify in your hearts Christ Jesus as Lord, we must spend 
much time in the epistles. Chapter 13 The Friendship of Christ How many have ever heard a sermon or read an article on this subject? How many of God's people think of Christ in this blessed relationship? Christ is the best friend the Christian has, and it is both his privilege and duty to regard him as such. Our scriptural support is in the following passage. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, Proverbs 18.24, which can refer to none other than the Lord Jesus. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem, Song of Solomon 5.16. This is the language of his spouse, the testimony of the church, avowing this most intimate relationship. Add to these the witness of the New Testament when Christ was termed a friend of publicans and sinners, Luke 7.34. Many and varied are the relationships in which Christ stands to a believer, and he is the loser if he is, if he is ignored in any of them. Christ is God, Lord, Head, Savior of the Church. Officially, he is our prophet, priest, and king. Personally, he is our kinsman redeemer, our intercessor, our friend. That title expresses the near union between the Lord Jesus and believers. They are as if but one soul actuated they are as if but one soul actuated them. Indeed, one and the same spirit does, for he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. First Corinthians six seventeen. Quote by John Gill Christ stands in the nearer relation than a brother to the church. He is her spirit. Excuse me, he is her husband, her bosom friend. End quote. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Ephesians 5.30 But even those relationships fall short of fully expressing the nearness, spiritual oneness, and indissolubleness of the union between Christ and his people. There should be the freest approaches to him and the most intimate fellowship with him. To deny Christ, that is, to, to ignore the tact, the fact that he is our best friend. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. That enduring title not only expresses the nearer relation between him and his redeemed, but also the affection which he bears them. Nothing has, does, or can dampen or quench its outflow. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end, John 13:1. That blessed title tells of the sympathy he bears his people in all their sufferings, temptations, and infirmities. In all their affliction he was afflicted. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old, Isaiah 63, 9. What dimensions of his friendship that title also tells of his deep concern for our interest. He has our highest welfare at heart. Accordingly, he has promised, I will not turn away from them to do, to do them good. Jeremiah 32.40 Consider more definitely the excellencies of our best friend. Christ is an ancient friend. Old friends we prize highly. The Lord Jesus was our friend when we were his enemies. We fell in Adam, but he did not cease to love us. 
Rather, he became the last Adam to redeem us and lay down his life for his friends, John 15:13. He sent his servants to preach the gospel unto us, but we despised it. Even when we were wandering in the ways of folly, he determined to save us and watched over us. In the midst of our sinning and sporting with death, he arrested us by his grace and by his love overcame our enmity and won our hearts. Christ is a constant friend, one that loveth at all times. Proverbs 17:17. 17, 17. He continues to be our friend though all the through all the vicissitudes of life. No fair weather friend who fails us when we need him most. He is our friend in the days of adversity, equally as much as in the day of prosperity. Was he not so to Peter? He is a very present help in trouble, Psalm 46.1, and evidences it by his sustaining grace. Nor do our transgressions turn away his compassion from us. Even then he acts as a friend. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2.1. Christ is a faithful friend. His grace is not shown at the expense of righteousness, nor do his mercies ignore the requirements of holiness. Christ always has in view both the glory of God and the highest good of his people. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs 27.6. A real friend performs his duty by pointing out my faults. In this respect, too, Christ does show himself friendly. Proverbs 18.24 Often he says to each of us, I have a few things against thee, Revelation 2.14, and rebukes us by his word, convicts our conscience by his spirit, and chastens us by his providence, that we might be partakers of his holiness, Hebrews 12.10. Christ is a powerful friend. He is willing and able to help us, some earthly friends may have the desire to help us in the hour of need, but lack the wherewithal. Not so our heavenly friend. He has both the heart to assist and also the power. He is the possessor of unsearchable riches, and all that he has is at our, is at our disposal. The glory which thou gavest me I have given them. John 17:22. We have a friend at court, for Christ uses his influence with the Father on our behalf. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 No situation can possibly arise which is beyond the resources of Christ. Christ is an everlasting friend. He does not desert us in the hour of crisis. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Psalm 23.4 Nor does death sever us from this friend who sticketh closer than a brother. For we are with him that very day in paradise. Death will have separated us from those on earth, but absent from the body we shall be present with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5.8 And in the future Christ will manifest himself as our friend, saying, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Since Christ is such a friend to the Christian, what follows? Friendship should be answered with friendship. Negatively, there should be no coldness, aloofness, trepidation, hesitancy on our part, but positively a free availing ourselves of such a privilege. We should delight ourselves in him. Since he is a faithful friend, 
we may safely tell him the secrets of our heart, for he will never betray our confidence. But his friendship also imposes definite obligations to please him and promote his cause and daily seek his counsel. Chapter 14 The Helpfulness of Christ One of the Apostles' purposes in writing the epistle to the Hebrews is to strengthen the faith of those who were sorely tried and wavering, and by parity of reason all who are weak in grace. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Hebrews 2.18 The method he followed in prosecuting that end was to set forth the transcendent excellency of Christ with his good will to the sons of men. He exhibits at length the perfections of his person, his offices, and his work. He declares that he is the Son of God who has been made the heir of all things, and he is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. Full demonstration was made of his immeasurable superiority to angels, yet so infinite was his condescension and so great his love to those given him by the Father that he took a place lower than that occupied by celestial creatures, yet in all things to be made like unto his brethren. Hebrews 2.17 In his offices he is revealed as the supreme prophet, the final spokesman of deity. Hebrews 1.1-2 As a glorious king. Hebrews 1.8 As a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews 2.17 in his work as making reconciliation, literally propitiation for the sins of the people, Hebrews 2.17, as ever living to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7.25, as bringing many sons unto glory, Hebrews 2.10. So amazing was the grace of this august being that he not only partook of the nature of those he came here to save, but also he entered fully into their circumstances, became subject to their infirmities, was tempted in all respects as they are, inward corruption accepted. He shed his precious blood and died a shameful death in their stead and on their behalf, and all of this to manifest the reality and abundance of his mercy unto sinners, fire in their hearts, and draw out the affections of believers to him. The apostle points out one of the blessed consequences of the sons having become incarnate and entered into fellowship with his suffering people. First, the Lord of glory came down into the realm of temptation. Scripture is always to be understood in its widest possible latitude. Therefore, tempt is signifying put to the proof, subjected to trials and troubles, solicited to evil. Christ was tempted by God, by men, by the devil. Second, he suffered while being tempted. Those temptations were not mere make-believe, but real and painful. It could not be otherwise, for not only did he partake of all human sensibilities, but also his holiness felt acutely every form of evil. Third, the remembrance of his sufferings makes him the more mindful of ours. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Let us consider first the timeliness and preciousness of those words to make 
to those to whom they were originally addressed. The Hebrew saints were Jews who had been converted in the days of Christ and under the preaching of the apostles, and they were in peculiarly trying circumstances. Their unconverted countrymen regarded them as apostates from Moses and therefore from Jehovah himself. They would have no fellowship with them, but instead regarded them with the utmost contempt and treated them most cruelly. This resulted in great distress and privation, so that they endured a great flight, fight of affliction, were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, even to the spoiling of their goods, Hebrews 10:32-34, because of their continued loyalty to Christ. Hence, they were strongly tempted to abandon the Christian profession, resume their former place under Judaism, and thereby escape further trouble. Now it was to believers in such a situation that our text was addressed. The Apostle reminds them that Christ himself was severely tempted, that he was subjected to worse trials than theirs, yet he endured the same and emerged a victorious overcomer. Then he assumed them, then he assured them that the Savior was able to sustain, comfort, and strengthen them. There are Christians today who are in circumstances similar to those of the oppressed Hebrews. The world hates them and and does so in proportion to their fidelity and conformity to Christ. Some are treated harshly by ungodly relatives. Some suffer at the hands of graceless professors. Others experience divine chastisement or perplexing guidance, providences or are passing through the waters of bereavement or a painful sickness. At such time, Satan is particularly active, launching his fiercest attacks, tempting them in various ways. Here is relief, real, present, all-sufficient relief. Turn your heart and eye to the Savior and consider how well qualified he is to succor you. He is clothed with our humanity and therefore capable of being touched with the feelings of our infirmities. The experience through which he passed fit him to pity us. He knows all about your case fully, understands your trials and gauges the strength of your temptation. He is not an indifferent spectator, but full of compassion. He wept by the grave of Lazarus, and he is the same today as yesterday. He is faithful in responding to the appeals of his people. He is able to succor, no matter what form the temptation or trial takes. Succor is a comprehensive word. It means to befriend, to assist those in need, to strengthen the weak. But the Greek term is even more striking and beautifully expressive. It signifies to hasten in response to a cry of distress, literally to run into the call of another. Chrysostom interpreted, quote, he gives out his hand unto them with all readiness, end quote. A blessed illustration is seen in the case of Christ stretching forth his hand to catch hold of Peter as he began to sink in the sea, Matthew fourteen thirty to 31. That was the Savior succoring one of his own. The same tender benevolence was yet more fully exemplified where we behold him as the good Samaritan tending the wounded traveler, Luke 10, to 35 He is able, 
The Greek word implies both fitness and a willingness to do a thing. Christ is alike competent and ready to undertake for his people. There is no unwillingness in him. The straightness is always in us. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto him by unto God by him. Hebrews 7:25 signifies readiness as well as ability. During his sojourn on this earth, he was not ever ready to heal was he not ever ready to heal diseased bodies and do you think that he is now unwilling to minister to distressed souls perish the thought he was always at the disposal of the maimed the blind the palsied yes of the repellent rebellion leper too he was ever prepared uncomplainingly to relieve suffering though it cost him something. There went virtue out of him, Luke 6:19. And though much unbelief was expressed by those he befriended, as it was then a part of his mission, excuse me, and it was then a part of his mission to heal the sick, so it is now a part of his ministry to bind up the brokenhearted. What a Savior is ours, the Almighty God, the all-tender man, one who is infinitely above us in his original nature and present glory yet one who became flesh and blood lived on the same plane as we do experienced the same troubles and suffered as we do though far more acutely then how well qualified he is to supply your every need cast all your care upon him knowing that he cares for you whatever your circumstances the succoring savior is all sufficient and enters sympathetically into your condition he knew what it was to be weary, John 4, 6, and exhausted, Mark 4, 36-38. He knew what it was to suffer hunger and thirst. Are you homeless? He had not a place to lay his head. Are you in straitened circumstances? He was cradled in a manger. Are you grief-stricken? He was the man of sorrows. Are you misunderstood by fellow believers? So was he by his own disciples. Whatever your lot, you can fully, he, he can fully en- enter it. He experienced all the miseries of mankind and has not forgotten them. Are you assailed by Satan? So was he. Do blasphemous thoughts at times torment your mind? The devil tempted him idolatrously to worship him. Are you in such desperation as to think of making an end of yourself? Satan challenged him to cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. He was in all points tempted like as we are, sin accepted. Angels may pity, but they can have no fellow feeling. But Christ's compassion to suffer with moves him to succor. In some instances, he does so before the temptation comes, and in a variety of ways. He prepares for it by forewarning of the same as with Israel being afflicted in Egypt, Genesis 15:13, and Paul, Acts 9:16. In our case, by causing his providences to presage the temptation, by fitting us for them as Christ was anointed with the Spirit before the devil tempted him, or by melting the heart with a sense of his goodness, which moves us to say, How then can I do this great wickedness? Genesis 39:9. He succors under temptation, in some cases by the powerful application of a precept or promises, 
promise, which as a cable holds the heart fast amid the storm, by a providential interposition which prevents our executing the evil intention, or by removing the temptation itself, by giving us to prove the sufficiency of his grace. 2 Corinthians 1, 2. He succors after temptation by giving us a spirit of contrition. Luke 22, 61-62. Moving us to confess our sins. As the angels minister to him after his conflict with Satan, so he ministers to us as well. Then no matter how dire a situation or acute your sufferings, apply to Christ for relief and deliverance and count upon his help. It is when the child is most ill that the mother comes and sits beside it. Isaiah 66.13 This ends the reading of tape number 7. Please go on to the next tape in the series. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can be reached by email, swrb at swrb.com, phone 780-450-3730, fax 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you don't have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Part 2 of the Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listing. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation bookshelf and Puritan bookshelf set if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.